question. Um, how are we like affording life right now? to a hundred dollars like this isn't even this isn't even barely anything to feed me for a couple days you're not budgeting your money oh you're not doing this oh you're buying coffee and it's like no i'm literally not doing any of those things i live paycheck to paycheck every week because i'm trying to pay every bill that the world is throwing at me right now and the government's response to that is oh hey everybody aliens are real we don't give a fuck about aliens we're trying to afford a roof over our heads i refuse to continue living my entire life like this i'm not going to struggle my entire life i'm just really tired of like not being able to do the things that i want prices on everything are up from food to gas to rent instead of 60 bucks to fill up your gas tank it's 140 instead of 99 cents for eggs it's fucking three dollars rent's going from three grand to five grand all that shit adds up and wages aren't going up fast enough wages have gone nowhere so what did most of us have to do myself included with the extra four hundred dollars a month i was spending on gas i had to use my credit cards even with three jobs now i'm not even going to make a dent on those credit card bills I seriously want to know what the end game is because soon we're not going to have any money for anything anymore so why the fuck are we working so hard to make money for other fucking people to use and steal our income just for us to never see it i don't know what to do anymore i don't i just don't understand at one point i thought i had some sort of a purpose i'm working just to basically pay bills just to survive last question will you succeed in getting a debate with biden do you think um i don't i don't i don't know i mean i think it's not very democratic to not do the debate um i hope that he will debate me and i i can tell you this and i i also hope that he'll come out and campaign because i'm seeing a vision of america in that you know both trump and biden are are boasting about the about the economic prosperity that they've brought to our country. They're, it's unusual to have two former presidents running against each other. Both of them are, are proclaiming their, their, um, their economic record. But I'm seeing uh, things in this country that I never believed that I would see in the United States. People living with, in a level of desperation that I, you know, I, I, I don't know, I, I've talked about, I have a friend called Keith Amato. Who is, and you know I represented commercial fishermen for almost all my career as an environmental lawyer. And he's one of my closest friends. And he, um, he's been, he, ran, he worked hard his whole life fishing out of Wellfleet and P-Town and, uh, and Chatham. And, but, and his, his son-in-law now owns a fishing business, but he has no pension and he has no, and he's on full disability. He had a lot of injuries and a lot of damage during his life. So he was collecting food stamps $283 he was getting a month, and it's critical to his survival. Even then, he was saying, he was telling me, you know, I have to switch recipes to make to be able to get through the through the checkout line. You know, I have to buy cheaper recipes and get fillers, etc. 
And in the last two years, the price of food, because to fund these wars that we're, you know, we're funding, they print money and that means inflation and that's a tax on the poor. Oh, the price of food has gone up by 38%. The price of, of basic food stuffs, um, chicken, eggs, and milk have gone up 78%. So his food stamps were 78%, you know, less valuable. On March 1st of this year, he got a phone call from the, a government phone call, robocall. The recorded voice told him that he was getting his food stamps cut to $23 a month, so 90%. 30 million Americans got that phone call. And, um, you know, that's the same month we ratcheted, ratcheted up our contributions to the Ukraine at, at to Ukraine at 30, at 113 billion. And we print, the Fed printed 300 billion unanticipated dollars to pay for the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank. There's lots of money for, for and, we, and we, we began cutting 15 million people from the welfare rolls. Since then, 4 million have been cut. This is on Politico this morning from, from the Medicare rolls. So there's no money for poor Americans. And the people that I see are living because of the inflation and because of what's happening at this, with this desperation. The average wage in this country is now $5,000 left less than the cost of, um, of basic goods, of food, transportation, and housing. So half of Americans are making up that gap by putting it on their credit card bills. And this week, we passed $1.1 trillion in credit card debt. That's the first time in history. Most of that, or $330 billion of that, has been in the Biden and Trump administration. Two men who are saying, I, you know, I, I'm helping America. There's a trillion dollar in credit card debt. And those people are paying 22% interest. If the mafia did that, it would be called loan sharking. Not dischargeable in bankruptcy, by the way. Right? And it can't be discharged. So you're, I'm meeting people who are, you know, couples who are sitting at their dining room tables and trying to figure out how, how this math works for them because they can't. They're, they're having to make choices. People in this country are choosing between food and gasoline and, and food and medicine. And they're, they're listening to a, a little baby crying in the room next door, young couples. And having to have to wonder whether that baby is fifty dollars sick or a hundred dollars sick or five hundred or fifteen hundred dollars sick before they bring them to a hospital. And you know, my wife and I were talking about it the other night, and we were talking about this epidemic of depression and mental illness and anxiety that is afflicting Americans. I think a deterioration, this sense that the wheels are falling off. And she said, you know, that's the way I felt when she was living in poverty. She said that's the way I felt when the engine light came on my car because I knew. There was no money to pay it. And you have all these Americans now who are living hand to mouth and uh, and they do not feel that anybody is listening to them in the political process. They feel they've been completely abandoned by the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and that those parties are now serving elites and um, and that, uh, you know, their voices aren't being heard. And particularly now, you know, the Democratic Party has had this very interesting shift where when I grew up, um, my when my uncle was president, my father was in the Democratic Party was where the people who were poor and working people were. And today, 
70% of the wealth in this country is owned by the Democratic Party and only 30% the Republican Party. The top 10 counties, the top richest counties in this country, nine of the 10 are Democratic counties. So there is this kind of shift in, in, uh, in wealth that maybe is one of the reasons that uh, Democrats do not seem to be talking to or for working people anymore. But I'm, you know, the people that I talk to, both through my job of representing them, you know, and, um, in, you know, I'm representing a thousand families in Columbiana County, Ohio, Eastern Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, Western West Virginia, whose lives were upended by the Norfolk Southern spill. And, uh, you know, they are just living in a le level of desperation that I never thought I'd see in the United States. And, uh, you know, my father used to bring us to um, to Southeast Washington. He'd load us in, uh, in, a, in a station wagon and bring us to Southeast Washington to, to meet people who were who were poor, or he'd take us to the Mississippi Delta or West Virginia uh, to Appalachia or the Indian reservations. And he always said to us, these, these are your people. Um, he said, the, the, uh, the people who are wealthy and the people who have, um, you know, who are the big corporate leaders and titans, they don't need the Kennedys. They have, um, they have lawyers and they have PR firms and they have lobbyists. And he said, these are your people. And he came back from, from uh, the Mississippi Delta one night and he said, to, uh, we were all eating, there were like nine of our kids in the dining room at that time. And he said, um, I was in a uh, tar paper shack today and there were two families there and they eat one meal a day and the kids go to bed hungry. And he said, when you grow older, I want you to do something about those people. And um, you know, that's one of the reasons that I'm running. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., thank you very much for that. Thank, thank you. Appreciate it. One solution for four challenges. First thing is, of course, meet the customer's water needs. The second one, contractual limits to rising water costs for customers. Very important. This is key and it's getting worse. Investors are protected through real assets, with real cash flows, and their own inflation indexing that permits them to keep up with inflation, but also the customers don't have unlimited risk. It's, a, it's the best of a bad situation, but that's what people are looking for. And finally, the, these clients, these companies, these water, water companies, consulting engineers, all get their projects funded, and there are many of them. Well, welcome to the briefing. As you can tell, I am really um, up in arms about inflation. And uh, last week, I showed you that Water rate inflation, which nobody's talking about, is at a, on a par with college tuition inflation, second only to hospital cost inflation. So um, these, these families in poverty are also dealing with water bills. And when you get your water cut off, where do you go? Bottled water, it's even worse. So that's, um, that's just the situation we're dealing with here. And we're going to cover this some more. All right. So with that, I'm going to jump right in here. Thank you for joining us. And here I've got the screen share going on. Water, the blue gold, Thursday, August 17, 2023, briefing number 224. Joe Kramer, is this supposed to be on water? Exactly. It is supposed to be on water. 
Nobody is talking about water rate and water sewage inflation, but people are feeling it. Defaults on water bills are in the range of 20% of unpaid water bills. It's a disaster and we have the solution. It's a mission for us. And so it's weird that we should be so involved with inflation, but we are. And water on demand is a way to have this protected, uh, inflation protected investment, plus it gives a proper, um, uh, businesses can manage their risk through, through a, through a long-term service contract, and the people will then be served by the municipalities. Keith Rudin says, in America, unbelievable. You said it, buddy. All right. So, um, of course, the usual disclaimers. All right. Now, I wanted to cover, you know, one, another topic that I've covered is degrowth and about populations. Now, why is this important? Water has a lot to do with supporting uh, growth. And I've, I've spoken already about deglobalization, driving business and manufacturing back to America, North America, which is really great news. Um, and of course, every one of those uh, modern plants will require integrated water. There will not be time to uh, spend 20 years building new uh, sites. So what's going on over here? This is something I picked up on a newsletter called Gone Global. And we have a problem with... Um, aging populations, especially Japan, 400% increase in 65 plus. US is relatively okay, uh, ironically because of immigration, but um, it's growing everywhere as you'll see. Here it is, we have age dependency ratio. As you can see, the Japan is rising super fast. Uh, about the only places that are staying pretty flat are India and the Philippines. China is starting to rise, US. These are all the countries that are in trouble. So. Um, India and the Philippines are relatively in good shape. Nigeria is not on this list, but it is also doing well. Um, here we have population 65 and, uh, and above. Again, Japan skyrocketing. Um, and you notice that India and the Philippines are rising, but they're just not as bad. Uh, UK and US are rising also. Birth rate per thousand people. In 1960, uh, it was about 23 per thousand in America. Now it's around 12. It's about half. Uh, we are below replacement rate. The Philippines is not yet there. They are, they've arrived where we were in 1960, but they too are going down. So the question for your business from this newsletter, what's your 20-year hiring strategy, robots or retirees? Well, the good news is, is that there is obviously this newsletter is about remote workers and Ken and I are going to be discussing later what's called the silver tsunami in water, which is a related problem. All right. James Wright, greetings, everyone. Hope you're as well as can be. Yes, we are. Thank you, sir. Oh, this is some great news. And um, let's, let's see what this is all about. This is super exciting. This was sent to us by one of our investors. And um, this is the Coalwood Wastewater Project. This is a small municipal wastewater project, and we were part of it. So um, why don't we just take a look at the video. Those who are on the verge of getting the vital infrastructure, it's a reason to celebrate. Well, just such an occasion brings people together in McDowell County's community of Colwood today, and our Robert Castillo was there. The first phase of the Colwood Wastewater Project is giving 72 homes and one business access to a new wastewater system. And I'm told this project has been in the works for at least 20 years. 
It's great to be able to offer this because this was an area that was straight piping to the creek with an old collection system. So to have this project up and operating, it's, it's great for the residents in the county and for also the PSD. Brewster says this is the first wastewater system being maintained by the PSD. Many coal towns in the county still rely on unmaintained systems put in by coal companies, but now one less community has to worry about sewage issues. And it's not just coal wood. That's why I said it's, it's countywide on these old coal camps. So that's why I'm so happy that this is happening here and it's just the first step and I can't wait. But yeah, they would call and say, hey, what can we do? So we just tried to put band-aids on it. And again, those just don't last for long. This is a long-term solution and this is just great. Total funding for this phase of the project was $3.8 million. And all money gathered came from grants, meaning sewage rates won't be impacted by loans. $1.2 million was granted for the project from West Virginia's Department of Environmental Protection. The ruralness of this county and, you know, the topography lends itself to a unique set of challenges that makes it a little bit harder for them to address sewer systems. You don't have the regionalization like you do in Kanawha County or Putnam County. The regional federal EPA representative for West Virginia says his office helps move projects like this one along but says county officials have done amazing work when it comes to finding solutions. They're figuring it out. And our job at EPA is to come and give a boost to communities just like this and, and local experts to get the job done. So, um, so what's been happening here is very unique, the level of partnership and ingenuity that they've had. Funding for the second phase of the Coldwood Wastewater Project is still in the works, but I'm told when it's complete, it will give wastewater access to 136 more homes. Here for you in Coldwood, I'm Robert Castillo, WVVA News. All right, thank you for that, Robert. Along with the coal wood, there are also plans to bring wastewater systems to Jaeger, Ashland, and Crumpler areas of McDowell County. All right. So this was an installation of wastewater project for a small uh, subdivision of the city of uh, Colwood, uh, 72 homes and a business. The project has been in the works for at least 20 years. So literally used to have straight piped into the creek. <laughs> like they were just dumping sewage for 20 years. And um, this is uh, unmaintained systems. And now they have, they had issues with sewage and yards and homes, et cetera. So what is this all about? Again, it's relatively small. Uh, and, uh, and it eventually will have you know, 136, so a total of about 200 homes. Um, here's what's interesting about this. This was a 2021 project, and it illustrates how long it takes for these things. Uh, literally, this was it closed on in June of 2021, and this was being covered this year. So that's how long it takes for water projects to occur. So this is modular. Um, it was our Averitreat, which is our in-ground water system, 17 and a half ga uh, thousand gallons per day wastewater treatment plant plus our Avera box storage tank. Um, and that was the branding that was slightly, uh, kind of showed slightly in the news article. Um, and about half a million dollars. At the far bottom right, you'll see basis of design, yes. Now, that's a critical thing about, wa about modular water systems is that 60% of all their projects, no one else can do them because they are the basis of design. The client has adopted the design. It's a huge, strong point. And it's actually very, very unique in the water industry. I want to thank Mike Artisan for sending it and also to congratulate Dan Early and the team. And, you know, but here's the issue. 
why did they wait 20 years? It took 20 years to pull this together. And that is a problem with our central infrastructure. Things take way too long and people's lives go by and they, they don't have good sanitation. All right. Um, inflation. Well, you know this more uh, like I've covered earlier on in this, uh, in this show. It will cost you 19.5% more to repair your car now, 17.8%. And they're pretending like inflation is 4 or 5%. This is not true. And we know that. So uh, that is the issue there. Let me go back to this other report because I think it's really interesting. And again, I apologize. I meant to put it uh, in a different section. It's not really about inflation, but I think it's worth covering. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and cover that. I think you'll be interested. If, if a drug is developed with even $1 of taxpayer money, which is basically all drugs, the government actually has the right to go in there and lower prices. But too often, including now, they do not exercise that right because they don't want to piss off the insurance companies and the pharmaceuticals. The top five pharmaceutical companies last year alone, their profit was 80 billion dollars and our medical debt is somewhere between 88 and 200 million. So do you think it, it will make a difference in this election that not just you but you and Bobby Kennedy mm -hmm. both are um, serious critics of the pharmaceutical industry? Yes. Um, skeptical. I mean, you know, I'm in the same camp of I don't agree with everything Bobby says. I'm not don't know exactly what where you are on this kind of stuff. I'm a medical skeptic of everything that includes vaccines. That doesn't make me or I don't know. Bobby says he's not an anti-vaxer. I think he's a little more anti than I am. But uh, I want the decisions to be able to be my decisions. What I do with any medical intervention, including vaccines, I, I of course understand that they work. I'm not sure he. I'm not sure we are on the same page on that. I think he thinks um, that the vaccines may have done more harm than good. My view is that because Americans are in such bad shape, they needed a vaccine. So it did save millions of lives. That's my view on that. I was not one of those Americans who wanted it or thought I needed it and resent having to had taken it. Where are you on that? Well, I certainly don't go as far as Bobby does. I think that the government was afraid to just be honest with the American people. Right. I was very... Well, that too. I was very concerned that there was so little conversation about treatment. And I agree with what you were saying. I think a lot of the danger and the risk involved had to do with the fact that we're not a healthy society. You know, no. uh, look how much higher the chronic diseases are here than they are in, in Europe. And it's all because of obesity, or almost all of it. A lot of it. Well, we have a sickness care system, as I said last year in mm -hmm. last... Uh, uh, debate rather than a health care system. And that's, of course, has to do with the quality of our food, quality of our water. Look at a ketchup bottle, an American ketchup bottle, uh, and the difference between that and a ketchup bottle in Canada. What is it? Oh, th there, are, there are elements in the ketchup in the United States, unhealthy factors that would not be allowed in Canada. That's why you have all these companies. There's a company called St. Cobain uh, that has a factory in Merrimack, New Hampshire, and it is just spewing PFAS into the water. And there's this huge what? PFAS, these forever chemicals that don't break down oh, and yes. that are known carcinogens. Now what are they called again? PFAS, P-F-A-S. P-F-A-S. This is what's so interesting to me. St. Cobain right. would not be allowed to do that in France. So like right. other companies around the world who are told by their governments, you can't put those kind of carcinogens right. in the food. You can't spew those kinds of carcinogens in the environment or the water. They say, 
That's okay. We'll go to America. They'll let us do it. Right. No, I know. Oh, I've been on that forever. So this deregulatory orgy that really began with um, Ronald Reagan, of course. Obviously, um, I'm not interested in the political side, but it's really interesting that we have a big, big problem with the the plastics in the water and, uh, you know, poor uh, regulation of the situation. And so that's really where the, the problem begins. Okay, so let's continue. We have a lot to get through, and that was interesting. I'm done with the finance news, so let's let's get on with something really interesting. Again, from the water point of view, let's stay let's stay with water. I I tend to agree with Joe Kramer. Here we go. Our Everglades is dying. Take a look at this. This is on the um, Joe Rogan show uh, six days ago. It's just a brief um, excerpt. Our our Everglades is dying. Is dying because of, of their water water quality issues. And our state- What is the source of the water quality issues? Overpopulation, too many people moving to Florida. So um, it's pollution-based, is that- Pollution-based, uh, agricultural-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- the core of it is not allowing the water to flow south how it needs to naturally. So the Everglades is the greatest filter in the entire world. It, it, it's a natural wonder of the world. It really is. and. Right now, we are not using it the way we should. Uh, we're, there are steps being taken to send water south and to start to restore some of this natural, natural flow. But the problem is, if we restored the natural flow to where it was, Palm Beach all the way down to Miami returns as a swampland. Oh. All of the sugar cane, which is huge money, at the south of Lake Okeechobee, is swamp and is is no longer um, being able to use for sugarcane, and we see a lot of that make the decisions in what happens with our uh, Everglades and conservation. Is it's a lot of corruption, a lot of uh, money driven, rather than we need to set aside this piece of land, have it gather water, treat water, send it south to be filtered through our Everglades and provide water to where it's dry, clean, healthy water, and then it can be filtered out through the Bay of Florida, um, we're seeing more where that land's being kept for agriculture or something else, or where a project gets started and then it's lobbied and nothing gets done. We're seeing a lot of promises not being made as well. So have they dammed the flow of this water? Yep. So there's a series of, of levees and locks that control the water in South Florida. It's controlled by South Florida Water Management. And, you know, they started managing the water 100 years ago or more, I believe, uh, maybe even much further than that. And that's really where we went wrong is we should have learned to kind of work with the water flow more um, and not totally shut it off the way we have and and totally made it man-made um which you know like i said they're trying to reverse some of that um they just built a a new lock that's going to help send some of the water south through uh tamami trail in 41 but it's just not enough uh we need more water to be filtered and cleaned and less of it to be dumped out into the estuaries on the east and west coast this water will remain stagnant and it'll build blue green algae which is actually a bacteria 
And this bacteria produces toxins. I believe it sucks up all the oxygen in the water. And I don't know if you've seen these fish kills we've had on the east and west coast. But that's exactly what it's from, is our water management. So it's not just the Everglades, but it's the east and west coast. And that's because they're taking the water that needs to be sent south, cleaned and filtered, and they're sending it out into these estuaries where it kills everything. And it's, you know, they're, they're protecting... Which, you know, I'm not blaming U.S. sugar by any means. Um, U.S. sugar does a lot to actually help Florida conservation. But it's just kind of a situation we've got ourselves in where there's not a great solution besides, you know, really taking away a lot of this money. And um, uh, our estuaries are just suffering for it. Our Everglades is suffering for it. Have they done anything to try to figure out how to mitigate whatever pollutants are getting into the water? Are they tried to figure out some sort of a solution um i'm sure i'm sure i don't know if it's gained any traction because right now we're, we're having algae blooms as we speak um on lake okeechobee in different areas and um no i don't know of any any solution to really combat come combat that algae bloom um and especially once they have it you know it's uh the water levels get so high they they have to flow it out is there a way to do this without flooding miami I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. But to get it in a way where everyone's happy and on board with it and there's the money to do it is is another thing. But so how did Miami get built? Was Miami originally swamp and they just filled it in? Yeah. um, The canal systems were able to redirect the water. Um, And, you know, I'm sure they which, you know, I don't know exactly how Miami was built, but I'm sure, yeah, they built up on the limestone on the swamp. It's essentially limestone bottom down there. And then they divert the water with these canal systems and they're able to, you know, send it in areas that's not Miami or send it through the canals through Miami out into the intercoastal and and things along those lines. Mm. And they have a series of locks and gates that help control all this. It's, It's very complicated. And, you know, I wish I knew. But more. if the natural flow of water mm-hmm. would happen, if they just removed all the levees and just let everything flow all the way down, it would flood Miami. Yeah, yeah. It would flood all, all, all through. Which, you know, who knows? They've maybe, if you could take away everything they did, all the ground being built up and everything, yes, it would, it would be a swamp. Wow. Yep. That's an interesting business. Interesting business. Joe Koenig, you just go ahead and write the comment and I'll be happy to cover you. Uh, as we go with that. So um, I'm going to go ahead and continue here with um, an excerpt from a, a podcast. Let's take a look. Welcome into this episode of How to Ride a Roller Coaster. I'm David Ezel, and today I'm joined by Riggs Eckleberry. He's the founder and CEO of Origin Clear, which is transforming the water industry one startup at a time. How's it going? Well, in fact, we're, we're having an amazing time with our, our the, the startup we're working on, back in January, we announced a letter of intent to merge it with, I'm not going to get technical, but there's these blank check companies on the NASDAQ that are founded just to acquire companies. You know, they have a bundle of money. Yeah. Anyway, so we, we signed a letter of intent to merge this startup of ours, Water On Demand. And I unfortunately can't comment further than that <laughs> one LOI, but I can tell you it's exciting. That's fantastic. So let's start right there with Water On Demand. Um, before we dive into your background, how you got to where that is, let's tell us a little bit more about what's going on right now. I'll have to just back up a little bit because um, 
so I was in high tech for just uh, a couple of decades. And when I finally felt I could be a CEO, um, uh, the backers that I, that I went to said, well, fine, but it's not going to be in tech. It's going to be in algae green. Interesting. All of a sudden I was in the algae industry as a CEO of a small public company. And it was amazing. It was fantastic. I was on all the big shows, you know, Stuart Varney called me, I'll call you algae man, you know, <laughs> all that fun stuff, which was great. Except that algae, uh, collapsed when the price of oil collapsed below $50 and we had to pivot. That's, we can talk more about this whole pivoting thing that, that I think is critical. But we got in the water industry and we found that it could not change. The water industry was not amenable to change. Like right. big governmental installation that does everything for you and everything will be fine, except it wasn't fine. Yeah. We know water infrastructure in this country and all over the world is a mess. Only 20% of all sewage in the world is ever treated. The rest is dumped. Now, it's a bit better in the U.S., but not much. So we have a lot of bad news, and a lot of people are assume it's fine. So it took us a long time to start to move the needle. 2000, 2015, we acquired a company, which is now our McKinney uh, Operations Center, Progressive Water. That was great. Give us good client, client base and so forth. 2016, I fell in love with decentralized water. There was a seminal Lux Research webinar that basically said it's a thing that increasingly because of overloaded infrastructure, business, industry, and agriculture is doing their own thing, self-reliance. They're treating their own water, whether it's right. a housing development or a farm or a car dealership or an RV campground, whatever, they're doing their own water treatment. And we realized that, hey, this is the solution to the underfunded infrastructure in America, which is take the load off. Don't have it do as much. And yeah. industry and agriculture treat 90%, I'm sorry, they use 90% of all water, right? Let's not worry about the 10%, let's worry about the 90%. Get wow. them off the system. And I'll be telling you about water on demand, which makes it attractive for them. And then the 10%, which is the true audience for the local utility, gets treated right. In Ireland, water is free. But why isn't it free here? Because you have industry and agriculture basically hogging the system and making it expensive for everyone. Get them off the grid, relieve it. Now the people can have clean water, inexpensive or free. I would have never put that number at 20%. That just blows my mind. Had you Gary. asked me that, I would, especially here, like you mentioned, other parts of the world, sure, I could maybe see it at 20, but I would have at least put you know, the U.S. maybe 50 to 60%. But I mean, knowing that that number is so low, that's that, fair. Yeah, and the it US, definitely feels like something's off. It, it is better in the U.S. But for example, look at in the Carolinas, you've got all those poultry farms that are just dumping nitrates in the river. In Florida, you've got a lot of sewage outflows, for example, that are creating algae, uh, toxic algae in Lake Okeechobee and places mm -hmm. like that. There's a lot of problems. Um, and also think about this. We have antiquated sewer lines, so they break. And they start to leak into the under the the, the uh, groundwater, the aquifer, and now it pollutes that. Nobody can dig a well and drink the water out of that well. You have to sanitize it and filter it. It's not clean. Wow. What does that say? It's like pretty horrendous. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit more about the water on demand. Is that individualized, or how does that kind of work? Okay. So first of all, as I say, we're targeting industry and agriculture because that's mm -hmm. the ninety percent users, and. There's two challenges. The first one is technology. You got to take that big utility scale stuff down to the corner of a brewery, 
which is going to be 150 square feet. Yeah. And we have that. We, invent, we, we created a company in 2018 called Modular Water Systems. These are water systems in a box. They're highly standardized, assembly line. Okay, you want one, boom, we'll get you one quickly. And that has proven to be extremely successful and it's growing. But then we ran into the other thing and this really, we, we, we were growing all this up until COVID hit. And then when COVID hit, I was like, uh-oh, big reset. Yeah. We didn't know in February of 2020 that there would be a bailout, right? The CARES Act, all that stuff. Sure. We went, oops, there's going to be a problem. So people are going to be capital starved. And that's when we came up with the other part of it, which is you want a water system and you're a brewery. You don't have a million dollars for a water system. You make beer, right? So just sign here. We'll deliver a machine. It remains ours. And we bill you on the meter just like you're accustomed to. Interesting. And they go, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And that, that brings us to the third part, which is how are these machines funded? Well, we made it possible for regular everyday investors to come in and invest in these uh, bundles of water systems, much like a an oil well partnership. You know, these master limited partnerships that are big, big success. Yeah. We're doing it for water. So we like to say water like an oil well. That's, That's what we're yeah, I love that. So are you guys national right now? I know that, like you said, a lot of it is here, here in North Texas and kind of that McKinney area. But are you guys national now? We are. Um, we're doing it now. So we're doing what's there's a set of initials, DBOO, design, build, own, operate. We do the D&B right now. In other words, okay. we do the conventional, we'll sell it to you and we'll maintain it. The water on demand concept moves us into OO where we own and operate it. And we're just, you know, you, you don't even worry about it. We take care of everything. We maintain it. And we just charge you on the meter. That is the big next phase because water as a service is coming. It's the natural thing. It's uh, why make people have big capital expenses when they can just essentially pay for their usage. Riggs, I have to ask, how did you... What is the mindset for all of this? Go, going back to where you started this and it all first kind of came from, what was that What was that kind of shift like whenever you dove into this industry? Well, I think we, it's got to come back a little bit to my background because early on, and this was really a factor of the tech industry, but even before that, was I have a very experimental mindset. And so I, rather than over-intellectualize things like, okay, take this, throw it out there and see if it works, right? And then be nimble enough to go, okay, let me adjust it. Let me, mm. let me, let me tweak it, tweak, 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 right? And so you know, I have the saying, invite the unexpected. You want to invite the unexpected because um, how you're going to succeed in this market, you're not going to succeed by being the same as everyone else. Right. You're going to have to have a special sauce. In our case, we were looking to differentiate ourselves from every other water company out there because the water industry grows very, very slowly. You know, 10, 15% growth a year is considered great. And this is why the big water companies, they do a lot of acquisition because that's how they get their numbers up. They just keep buying companies. Yeah. Uh, American Waterworks has a billion dollar a year M&A budget. Well, it's easy for them to just buy 10, $100 million companies, right? Sure. Um, <laughs> keep it clear. <laughs> um, right? Keep it simple. And so you, you have this um, very static water industry. So how do we break out of it? And because we were already a public company, and we were developing things, we, we turned what was a liability, which is we were burning money and getting investors in, into a, an asset, which is, hey, we do a great job of bringing in investors, 
Let's put them into these capital resources and create eventually a generational asset for them. Interesting. Because they're, they're going into a royalty type situation that goes on as long as that fund continues. It's fabulous. And so that's where you guys are now. That's kind of the shift after, after the first part has been kind of launched. That's the shift now. Right. So modular water systems is a success. Uh, the, the, well, first, the progressive water entity in McKinney was, has been doing a great job all along, but the t- yeah. in 2022, they took a big leap um, and you know, almost doubled their, their, their numbers, which is a lot for water. And so did modular water. So they both just kind of took off. Wow. And as a result, we found ourselves with great performance. And now we're combining those two with this brand new idea of the paper gallon, right? The water on demand paper gallon. You know, the, the, here's, here's the thing that we, we know that investors like you and me, you know, we're, we're people who, have, who do pretty well. And we have a little bit of cash and like, well, what do I do with it? Yeah. Um, oh, you got to put it in, you know, um, an S&P 500. Like, well, <laughs> I, I don't believe that stuff anymore. Index funds burned. until you finish. Yeah. Or crypto. Oh, my right. God. Oh, Lord. I don't I don't want to know. Well, it's been great for capital losses. Let's put it that way. That's it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of people are going, well, how do I get an edge? And we know that, that getting in early on something is good. But, you know, if you look at the Airbnb rounds, you can look it up on the Internet. It was all insiders, 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 insiders until the IPO. Yeah. And so how do you become an insider? So we crafted. It's like, you know what? The water industry is becoming, it's exploding, it's breaking out of the monopoly. Let's open it up to regular people. So we have this saying, water is the people's asset. Love both that. for consumption, but also for investment. Uh, there's somebody made a prediction that the first trillionaire is going to be in water. We said, no, no, no. We want a million millionaires, not one trillionaire. Right. Let's democratize this thing. Let's have some fun. You know, uh, the, and for some reason, the elite has not really caught on. Uh, it's just beginning. There was a unicorn in May that had all the kind of wonderful you know, fund support and so forth, but it didn't explode yet the way AI did. Right. I mean, right. it's, we have the time to do it and do it right. And to have an innovative model that is going to resonate. And then we can start cloning it beyond America. You know, and I think that's such a fascinating segue to kind of jump into, because I think a lot of times people that are in that position like ourselves, where how do you become somebody that can get in from the ground floor? How can you, how can you get in, early with something that, you know, 99% of people just don't know. You don't know about those early rounds with Airbnb or Uber or any of those types of companies. Those happen almost right. in a silo, in a vacuum away from, from our vision. So this is amazing. And I think that there's so much opportunity for it because, I mean, I keep going back to that 20% number. The need is so large. So the opportunity is so great. So, I mean, I, like I said, I, I love what you guys are doing. Well, and think about it. Let's take a, take a look at India where there's a real problem. India is a wonderful subcontinent. It's coming up in the world, but their water infrastructure sucks. Yeah. They just basically don't have it. They got people in the sewers who are dying from the sewer gases. They're literally shoveling this stuff. You know, what do they do? Well, they're not going to, who's going to come up with $500 billion or whatever? That's a huge, huge country. Yeah. Well, why not just have decentralized from day one where it's self-reliant pods, both uh, in industry and in farms in housing developments, eventually individual homes, it makes a whole lot more sense. And then, and then you have a small 
municipality for to supply the fresh water. The treated water gets recycled, and then they can dump it into the ground, into the aquifer to recharge it, and everybody's happy. So that's a it's a model that we need to learn from. Let's take a look back home here at Miami-Dade County. It was built without any urban planning back in the day. And so there's about a, over 100,000 septic tanks in the county. And they fail, they leak, they, they're literally because the, the, the water level is rising, or maybe the ground's subsiding, I don't know right. which, but whatever. Uh, it's literally these, these um, septic systems are coming in contact with the aquifer, and it's a real problem. It's mm. a real I mean, it, it, the sanitary issue. So the city's going, the county is going, okay, let's spend billions and connect sewage to every single one of these things. Well, number one, it's supposed to be $6 billion. It'll be 10 12 sure. by the time they're done. Secondly, it'll tear up streets for 20 years. Why not just give a rebate to those septic owners to put in one of those close, those um, self-reliant systems that are mature by now? You know, the, 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 the poop goes into a sludge tank that gets emptied out once a year by a truck, and that's it. It's done. But here's the problem. Miami-Dade County is not thinking that way. They like sewage. They yeah. like pipes. They like to raise a lot of money and have the big plant. But this doesn't solve the problem. Right. So here's our approach. We're not talking to Miami-Dade County. We don't talk to late adopters. I learned that in high tech. You talk to the early adopters. You talk to the people who really, really need it. They're being fined, or as we see in North Texas, that they're building a housing development that's 20 miles from the local sewage plant, so that's impossible. So they need a self-contained thing. So they know they need it. You don't have to market it to them. They know, I, I got to have this thing. It's a flying J in the middle of the country on a freeway. Yeah. No connection to anything. It needs its own sewage connection. RV campgrounds, mobile home parks, all that stuff. So the, the first generation for us is... The users that are forced to be self-reliant and we don't go to, you know, there's a wonderful, wonderful uh, book called Inside the Tornado. It describes the high-tech life cycle, right? The high-tech life cycle always starts with, I call it the nose of the armadillo, because right there at the beginning is the, the super early adopters, the people who actually use the Newton PDA back in the day. Right. Those people. They're like, they're just, they just do it because it's new. And that gets you in there. You start progressing along the snout of the armadillo. Now you get to what's called the strategic buyers who are buying something for a good, valid, competitive reason or they're legally being fined or whatever. After that, there's something called the chasm, which is something you have to leap over to get wide adoption. And that is, that is how do you get there? Well, at the bottom of, you, the bottom of this, as it starts rising up, the very bottom of it, something called, uh, this guy calls it the bowling alley, where you create a bunch of, of, of applications and a bunch of users. And after a while, you get critical mass and boom, it takes off. All of a sudden, you have a tornado of adoption, right? Now, that's co very common in high tech. It happened with um, back in the 80s when I had a computer company in New York City. We, we saw two competitors show up for, for big enterprise databases. One was called Ingress and one was called Oracle. And Oracle did not work. Ingress works great. Well, guess who survived? Oracle. Oracle. Why? Because Larry Ellison was smart enough to go for the adoption. Interesting. And, and, and the users are like, well, it doesn't work too well, but everybody's buying it. So it'll get worked out. It'll get figured out. Whereas Ingress is like, we will not ship anything if it does not work. You know, and I'm, they're not German. I'm not. <laughs> that was not a German thing. I was just saying that they had this conservative attitude, right? As a result, you've got to go for the velocity, 
when there's a tornado of adoption, then it's a matter of how many seats can you get, how fast. Yeah. It's, it's, it's um, market share. It's not no longer about proving the technology, but it's about who has the momentum. And then at the, at the top of that, of that uh, curve, the back end of it is the conservative guys and the skeptics. And you don't market to them. Why? Because they'll follow. Yeah. They'll follow the trend, right? So people say to me, oh, why don't you go get a grant from Tallahassee? I'm like, nope, not going there. I'm not doing it. Because they'll put me through the ringer and they'll give, it the, they'll give the deal to their golfing buddy anyway. So no thanks. We deal with users that are desperate. And I think that's the key, you know, in entrepreneurialship is find, find the, the, where's the real demand and, and don't rest until you have it. It's too easy to just go, okay, this is good. I'm making environmental test kits, but nobody's buying environmental test kits, but I'm making environmental test kits. Right. You know, you got to find the traction. And that's, I think, the key. And we'll keep it on going here. Now, a quick look at me interviewing a podcaster. I'll be on the Inventive Journey next week. But I thought we would interview this man and kind of uh, flip, the, flip the scenario. Here he is. We've got Devin Miller from Miller IP Law joining us on the CEO briefing tonight. Uh, Devin, it's such a pleasure having you. Thank you for having me on. Excited to be here. Fantastic. Well, this, uh, you know, the CEO briefing that I do uh, last week was uh, number 223, uh, basically since Zoom took over during COVID. So <laughs> we've we've had a, a great run and mostly it's to brief our shareholders on what's happening in the world of water, but uh, also wider in terms of uh, topics like things like inflation, things like global trends, like uh, the deglobalization trend that's going on and so forth. Your particular uh, focus obviously is on IP law and your um, very active in that area and you've got a following. And so um, I'd like our, our shareholders to hear more about you and, and what, what gets you up in the morning, what excites you? Yeah, that's a, probably a long and sorted tale, but I'll try and give the, the reasonable <laughs> version of it. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I do a lot of things, but they're, they're at least the, the day in and day out, it'd be intellectual property. So I've uh, an intellectual property attorney for coming up on 11 years, started uh, my own firm, firm, Miller IP Law about uh, four years ago. Um, but you know, that's, or I also, I, I don't know, or I also equally enjoy and love doing startups and small businesses. So alongside the, the law firm, I've also done, uh, everything from a food truck with the kids. I've done a, a lead generation platform, uh, tool, um, done, a, a wearables company and, and several other things. And so for me on kind of on both sides of it, what gets me up in the morning is, uh, one the alarm clock, but then once I, I get up, uh, with the alarm clock, um, you know, it's really the enjoyment of uh, working with a lot of different startups and small businesses, as well as be able to do several startups on my own and uh, be able to kind of captain that ship. And uh, between both of it, it uh, keeps life interesting and uh, pretty exciting. Well, one of my passions is uh, personally is disruption and how disruption works. I've, I've, I was a disruptive marketer during the dot com somehow ended up in water, which is another long and sorted story, which we'll explore uh, on the uh, the podcast that you're so kind of guesting me on. But I'm interested in is how you use your IP law, um, really, that's your platform, as a way to kind of uh, coalesce or, or have synergies with the startup. I mean, is, is that your, 
Is that where you come in on these things? I think the thing that I enjoy is, you know, you can find a lot of great attorneys that know the law very well. It can counsel you and give you direction on that. What tends to be lacking with a lot of attorneys is the ability to also infuse in the business side and the guidance and what makes sense from a business perspective, not just a legal perspective, because those answers aren't always the same. On on the uh, IP front, I recently saw um, there's a whole thing going on in uh, Amazon and Goodreads regarding books. And what's happening is that you have, let's say, a well-known author um, will have a bunch of uh, copycat books. They're they're on, ver on variety of topics, you know, how to you know how to raise salary better. But it uses the author's name to try and sort of, and then the authors ha are having a hard time getting these removed from Goodreads and Amazon. And one author said that she, the Amazon said, well, show me the registered trademark for your book. I'm like, whoa. That is so unusual, and it makes me think that the the and I also know that USPTO has become much more demanding on trademarks, like show actual use, you know, versus uh, just throw it on a website kind of thing. So, um, wh where do you think the, the the trademark wars are going? Is it going in this sort of very literal direction where we have to do all this? If you have a trademark and you can do it to a lesser degree with copyrights and patents, then you get additional benefits and ability to control your brand and some of your store and that on Amazon. And so that's kind of where their knee jerk and it is kind of a, a bit funny because generally you can't get a trademark on a book or on a book. Right. Title. That's the now, whole point. Please, the exception is, is you can get it if it's on a series. And so if you're to do a Harry Potter or Harry Potter mm. series or Lord of the Rings or Jack Ryan or pick your genre, um, if it is a book or a series of books with the same overarching name, then you can get it. So there are ex exceptions to that. Um, but generally, I think that trademarks it, it's kind of with a lot of intellectual property, it ebbs and flows. And so you'll get a swing with the office that they are very aggressive and take a very tight stance. And probably with trademarks right now, um, you know, we are seeing more things pop up with examiners being overly aggressive with proving that you're using it in commerce. In other words, there's a reasonable amount. You do have to show you're actually using the trademark in order to own it. It's evolved a lot. It's probably from a lack of people are so used to everybody having an online presence and everybody doing everything online that that's where it's been in a little bit impactful on the, on the trademark side. Do you think trademarks are effective? I'll turn the question around. Do you think that uh, Nike, Pepsi, Disney, M&Ms, Apple, Samsung, do all those names have value? Well, they aggressively <laughs> support their brand in addition to the trademark strategy, right? So yeah. they're doing they're doing a lot, you know, to to support it. And uh, I would argue that in a vacuum, Nike's trademark would be meaningless without all that commercial. No, I, I did definitely. I mean, just simply going out and getting a registered trademark and doing nothing else with the business. I would say that's the, the case with anything. You could have a great product that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And yet if you can't go out and sell it, or you can't go out and find customers, great product isn't going to make a big or a great business. A trademark by itself isn't going to make a great business. And so, but on the other hand, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. So in other words, if you're to take Disney, we'll just say that as an example, without getting into all their political stuff or anything of that nature, right. But, you know, Disney has a brand that they've built over the course of a long period of time, has a great rate name recognition. People know what it is, that they have their parks, their theme parks, they have the movies and part or now what they did to build that a lot of brand or establishing the brand marketing sales, um, commercials and everything else. 
but the way that they capture a lot of that value so that they can control it is still by trademark. So in other words, if you want to go and license in something, you're going to, if you want to get a license from Disney, if Disney, if they'll give you one is going to be licensing the trademark. Disney is still very aggressive because they put in all of that value. Now they want to be able to control it so that people don't just don't go start calling everything Disney, leveraging all the time, money and effort they put into their brand and yet not, or not having to invest in them, you know, the other companies not invested themselves. So I think trademarks can be valuable, but you do have to as, do the additional business work to build the business around it, to establish a brand so that the trademark then reflects some of that value and captures it. Yeah, well, of course, the perhaps the preeminent um, branding boss at this time who does not advertise at all is, of course, Elon Musk. Interestingly enough, Elon Musk is not a trademark term, right? But same as if I go out there and start branding myself, my build my personal brand. I'm not trademarked. I know he that in I'll give Elon Musk is probably the exception. He gets into about probably I don't know that he has a trademark. I would guess he probably doesn't. He could probably get a trademark if he wanted. If your name rises to the level that everybody associates a given name with a given individual. So when you think of Michael Jordan, everybody always thought of the basketball player. But now to your point, for 99.9% .9 of people, your name never gets to that level and you're not able to do it. Um, so I don't, or Elon Musk, I would counter with, I think he does a lot of things to market his name or to keep himself out there. He just doesn't have to do it via paid advertising or a lot of that. He does it uh, via different avenues. Yeah. And I just literally checked, uh, the electronic search system and sure enough, um, Elon's Elon, there's no Elon Musk trademark. It's interesting. No, it's just, a, a it's something that came up for me. I had really never thought it through actually the hmm. potential trademark. Uh, trademarking of a personality um, because it's so powerful these days. But anyway, that's interesting side note. Um, I wanted to ask you, Devin, you have a very um, active podcasting career. You do a lot of that. Do mm -hmm. you uh, pair that with things like um, speaking engagements or, or authorship or how, how do you um, sort of build a stuff, uh, intellectual stuff around that? So a lot of times I look at it as the broader podcast books, speaking engagements are a way for me to then make connections and network with people to then turn it into that one-on-one -on -one conversation. What would you say the primary benefit of podcasting is for you? I really set it up when I started out it was it was giving back to the clients that we already had. And so it's, you know, it's called the inventive journey, but really it tells the journey of how people get to where they're at today. But now what is also beneficial is because I'm sharing a lot of in, in uh, startups and small business stories, and that's who our clientele is, I make a lot of good connections. And it's whether it's a guest on the podcast, whether it's somebody they know. So it's a great way to connect within the audiences and the people and the different realms that I have clients with, but it's in a much more natural way. It's not so invasive. It's not the cold email or the, or, you know, cold outreach that I'm just blasting everybody and hoping I get a small or portion. And so they get value, they get exposure, and then it gives me or uh, increases my network. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Now I want to talk about something really, really important. Uh, you're based in Ogden, Utah. And um, I also see that you run seven to nine miles a day, which is freaking amazing. And how does that tie in with the Forrest Gump? Uh, tag. It's just Forrest Gump. It happens to be my favorite movie. And so oh, yeah. I, I put it in there. Um, but yeah, I love running. I think I've done, ran pretty consistently seven to nine miles. Almost. I don't run on Sundays. I always take Sundays off, but every other day, um, probably now for 
10, 15 years. And half the time is where I have my greatest ideas because my mind starts to wander. It lets it unwind. And then it uh, allows me to kind of recharge before I jump back into the day. The, the connection for me, of course, is that I, I am a beyond avid skier. Uh, I've, I've, in fact, at one point at the age of 40, I interrupted my entire career to go ski bum in Colorado. And people were looking at me like I was insane, but I'm so happy I did it because, you know, you, you got to get outside of the loop, as you know, and I dearly love Powder Mountain up in Eden. It's what an amazing resort. Do you do any uh, skiing or boarding yourself? You know, I get asked that all the time. I don't. I usually, if I'm doing something, I'm on a snowmobile. So I like to go fast and go oh, up that's in the cool. mountains and that. So hey, that's if I do it, that, that's usually where I'm at. So that's super challenging. I mean, you can get yourself quickly in deep trouble in a snowmobile. I, I try and stay out of trouble, but I try and have a fun time to, or staying out of trouble. I, I agree that in, in order for us all to kind of just stay sane and so forth, we've got to have these extroverting passions, um, you know, these activities. It, it sounds like running is not so much a passion as something you've developed into a routine, but nonetheless, I think it's extroverting for you, right? It gets you off your current topic of yep. the day. And I agree. I mean, for me, the skiing has been, I mean, Look, I'm no spring chicken, and and after a while, like, well, why the heck am I skiing? It's not just to go up the lift and back down again. So um, my wife has a school, and I take the school kids up skiing uh, every year, and which is a whole production coming from Florida, and um, but that gives it meaning, and it's a, it, I'll I'll just kind of become a ski teacher mm -hmm. for a week, and and uh, that change I think it changes everything. I, I listen to Joe Rogan a lot. And one thing about Joe Rogan is that he's got extraordinarily diverse interests, right? He's he's just curious about so many things and he's not doctrinaire either. He's obviously got a career that that he pursues um, and does well, but then he almost seems to relax in his podcast. He almost just like hang out and just chat with you for three hours. I have to say, I admire that tremendously. Do you, do you ever see yourself doing a longer form than what you do currently in terms of podcasts? We actually, or the podcast is a series of podcasts and it is a, it's set up so you can follow the person, the guest along their journey and hear different aspects of it. But the original mm -hmm. one that started out was the inventive journey. And I think we're now at over 500 episodes. Um, but when we first started out, we tinkered around with anything from 10 or 15 minutes up to, I think, almost an hour, at least 45 minutes, if not an hour. And it felt like if it was two, if it was 10 or 15 minutes, it was too short to really give their journey justice and to capture it. And yet, if we went on to 45 to 60 minutes, it was just kind of dragging on and it was, it wasn't really keeping a good pace and there were people were losing interest. And so I, at least for me, probably my attention span works well with the 30 minute, 30 minutes ish mm -hmm. um, tends to work, resonate well for me. I think that Joe Rogan is atypical. I mean, I think he just settles in and you just kind of in the warm bath. And, you know, I, I have a long commute to my workout because I insist mm -hmm. on, on doing this uh, on the, I do this bar method thing, which is a ballet bar workout, right? Hmm. which I'm the only guy in the room, which is fun in its own way, but it's far. And so I, this is perfect for me to just listen to Joe Rogan. If somebody calls while I'm listening to it, it's hmm. fine. But I think he occupies a unique, I don't think it's easy to replicate what he does. It's it's a, a very special thing. No, I, I think so. And he's he's found a great niche of uh, just kind of allowing people to tune in, listen or do the conversation. And then when they or when they don't have the time, they just can tune back out. So I, I, I like it, but I don't think I could replicate it. One last question, Devin. Where, where do you see yourself 20 years from now in terms of accomplishments, where you're at 
kind of draw draw an idea of where you think you're going uh, on a longer time span. If you would have said 25 years, I'd hope I'm retired and just enjoying life. But uh, I don't know if I'll ever actually retire. But no, who does anymore? Yeah, I, I would like to get to a point, and then I'll answer your question, where I would say retirement for me is I don't have to work if I don't want to. And so in other right. words, it now becomes optional where that's kind of where I'd love to be. You know, where am I going to be or the next 20 years? Oh, that's so hard. I will probably or continue on with the law. I love it and enjoy it. And that's kind of always been my mainstay. And then I'll probably have another five or five different startups that I've been involved with or started and they're uh, doing in various things because for me, it's a fun of, I like to do the law. It provides a good income, good living. And I also love startups and small businesses. And if there's something that catches my fancy that I think that I can do well or do differently and that I can make money at, then I tend to do it. I find it enjoyable. And even if I don't always hit a home run on it, I enjoy doing it. And so probably I'll continue on the law continue to grow the law firm, um, continue to help startups and small businesses, and then do as many fun startups as I can myself. Yeah. Okay. So um, in one way we measure um, our, the worth of our life in terms of what people got out of it. You know, like if I take again, the Elon Musk example, he, Mm. he started the whole EV trend. He's, you know, pioneering space. He's doing a million things. And so I I think that he would measure himself if he ever does, I don't think he cares, but if he ever measured himself it would be based on the impact he made. Hmm. And I, I guess this is your track. This is what, what turns you on every day is to, is to help these, these ventures along and, and to be kind of a, a, a foster parent to them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say if I were to measure it, two things, one is, and we haven't touched on it much, our big, our big priority in my life is my wife and kids. And if I had nothing else that I accomplished in life, but I was a great father and a great husband, that would be more than sufficient for me. And I'd be, I feel like I'd lived a great life. And then on top of that, on the business side, if I can be impactful, helping startups and small businesses, solving problems, and then just enjoying life and having fun along the way, um, that would really be the the life that I'd, I'd seek to, to accomplish. Sounds like you're doing it. And I totally agree that at the end of the day, creating the next generation is is the name of the game. I totally agree with that. Absolutely. Devin, it's been such a pleasure spending a few minutes with you. I appreciate the time you've, you've given me. Really interesting. I look forward to our talk in a few days. Other than that, I wish you a wonderful weekend with your family. Uh, and uh, And lots of success and prosperity with your mission. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me on. It was a fun conversation and definitely enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. Okay. Well, that was, (laughs) I'm not going to do a lot of these because it kind of uh, gets totally off the point, but um, uh, maybe I'll start a separate podcast to interview people, but it won't be this show. Okay. So with that, we have come to, at long last, the three willing discussion. First of all, good. You're a good interview, right? It was incisive, <laughs> um, and and he's an interesting guy, right? Because he's got a a nice broad um, knowledge base, um, and it's interesting. The um, the opening, uh, I think it was was it CBS uh, CBS News, uh, where people were just, I mean, they were lamenting that they were lamenting, uh, you know, they can't pay their bills. Oh yeah, started crying. <laughs> You know, and, 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 you know, so it was like, we covered a lot of ground today, right? You went from the very base to the very cerebral. Um, but um, I think that opening thing kind of gives the state, I heard, uh, so here, so here's something else that I got from 
what you did. So you played, is that Marion? That's Marion Williamson, right? Yes. Marianne Wilson. Marianne Williamson. Um, who's just like a hippie, right? Uh, and then you've got RFK Jr. And so what you have now is you have a rise of the populist on both the left and the right. Because if you notice, 80% of what they're saying is the same. Exactly. Right? So one guy sits on the left side of the aisle and the other guy sits on the right side of the aisle, but they're basically shaking their fist at the establishment, at the at the system that put you know, what, 60, 70, 80% of people living in paycheck to paycheck and borrowing on their credit cards. The $1.1 trillion debt. I have a friend who owns a debt settlement company. And he's like, I can't. He goes, it, I, it's never been better. Oh, God. That's, I know. He oh, says, God. the business is insane. He goes, people owe $100,000 on their credit cards. And they're making 30000 a year. No, no, these, these are people. No, these are people making a hundred, a hundred twenty, hundred thirty thousand dollars a year, but they live in New York or they live on Long Island or they, you know, and it's like you know they're living their home, their taxes are twenty five thousand dollars a year, right? Their car payments, their mortgage, the gas. I mean, it's just you know. So, um, I what I found to be most interesting is doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you're on, um, when both sides of the political spectrum are largely agreeing on core issues. Um, and, and it seems that they have to rail against that, that our government's broken. Right. And that's because the main government is just like this. As, as Bobby Kennedy put it, both the you know Democrat and Republican established parties just don't care. DC is doing great. Their money right. in like right. crazy. It's the richest neighborhood, richest neighborhood in the country. And they call it the uniparty because they the only time they ever agree is when they're gonna raise taxes. Yeah. Right. We have a bipartisan agreement to stick it to you, right? So no. and, and, and everything and, else is fine. You know, here's the thing. Let's get away from the politics on it because I do want to just wrap up with water. Um, because what we have identified here is a two-part solution to this inflation problem. Number one. We're going to help reduce the inflation pain by getting the, the the businesses off. They get a benefit by controlling inflation, and the municipalities can then service the people. So that is a dual benefit. That is our mission. That's our also mission. Control, control, uh, controlling costs, being able to have predictive costs. Look, right. the, the bane of the small business guy that keeps him up at night staring at the ceiling is what, what's next month going to look like? So providing reasonable controls and reasonable guardrails on cost on costing for businesses is, is, is a lifesaver. Um, the indexing to both maintain control on the business side and to also maintain um, protection against rising inflation costs. Look, we, one thing we all agree on, Whatever $100 buys today, it will not buy in 10 years. And if you're getting to a certain age or if you're living on your retirement, that's really, really frightening. The, the, speaking of retirement, so the silver tsunami, I wanted to bring that up and I mentioned it to you today. And I can't get into too much into this. So I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be too cute by half. But um, we used to we used to basically talk about the silver tsunami being a real disaster, a real um a real concern because you had all of this talent that basically um, was aging out. Now they can't, here's the, here's what we found in working with these guys over the years, Riggs, as, as you can attest to, they can't retire. The guy does $10 million a year. He pays himself $200,000. He's driving a, he's driving a 15 year old Cadillac and he can't retire because if he does, he can't sell his business. 
right? He doesn't have an heir. If he sells his business, everyone's going to go, oh, you're not with Ken anymore. I'm out of here. And so literally you cannot monetize that business properly. So the, the, the silver tsunami that's taking place in the water business, if we have access to capital through what we're doing, right? If we end up, if we come through the end of this process with significant levels of capital, we can take in these, we can roll them up and, you know, you could, uh, you're talking about five or six or 10 to one leverage on cash. So if you can take $20 million and turn it into a couple of hundred million dollars, what can you do on the far end of that um, with half a billion as maybe a NASDAQ traded company? Here's my point. We're going to disrupt the water business in a way using fintech, using that end-to-end service, becoming a decentralized methodology. That's certainly going to happen. But on the other end of it, the silver tsunami ends up being the greatest gift that ever happened to us. I keep saying, oh my God, we have to have an angel on our shoulder because we're so fortunate. It's like all of a sudden this thing is a gift. We There's thousands of companies that would love. Now, look, if you go and buy them, you give them a million dollars, what are they going to do? They're going to go away. And then the business collapses. But if you give them a thousand dollars, then you give them stock that could be worth 10 times that in 10 years. If they help us build something, are they going to go away? Golden handcuffs. Golden handcuffs. And they're right. And they're doing it with a smile. So um, I'm more excited about this aspect than has, as this has become clear to me, it's been something I've been excitedly talking about in the last couple of days. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you probably got a, a message from, we, we, there's a lot of things happening that are very uh, kind of time sensitive. We need to talk. I can fill in the blanks on this and be much you know, less um, opaque, right? Um, but reach out to me, uh, get on my calendar, and, and set aside some time and I'll go, I'll go through it with you. This is a amazing time to be alive. And it's a, um, an amazing time to be in the place that we are right now as both the company and its investors. Yes. And I'd love to actually, uh, we, we went over, way over time because of the content that I threw into this thing. Um, but I think we should discuss it further next week. Uh, let's get into that. Sure. Sure. And, and I'll probably have more to talk about by then because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting more and more immersed in this subject and I'm, I'm getting more and more feedback. Um, so there'll, there'll be, I'll have a little bit more, um, more content. The other, yes, we will do that. And the other big thing next week is we are having a micro a modular water systems, competitive analysis done by a professional. We will go through that deck. It's fascinating. And I think it'll be really, really timely. All right. Uh, really fast, uh, Marcus Walker, everything that's going on right now with the economy, meaning the stock market and inflation, would that affect water and demand's future? Exactly. Inflation is the key to what we're doing because we're disrupting water inflation. That's exactly what we're doing. There are post and passive income streams are important moving forward, especially for the average workforce as the future of work comes to play. So true. And Tom Liakos, thank you. Nice job. Well, with that, fill out your Zoom survey. Ken, it's been a pleasure having you on tonight. And thank you, everyone, for uh, listening in. Um, we set I've, a record tonight, I think. <laughs> I'm not going to keep doing it. It's too much. <laughs> it's like, uh, I'm falling asleep. All right. Remember, I had to push a motorcycle today. All right. I'm tired. Yeah. Okay. All right, buddy. Have a great night. Thank you, everyone. And um, enjoy your weekend. And I'll see you next week with that ripping, <laughs> as the British say, as a ripping analysis that we do of modular water. Good night, everyone.